We're going to talk about attitude, how important attitude is and what a difference it makes in your life. Uh, it's probably the most important aspect that will, in regard to your success as a person in all of life is your attitude. The dictionary defines attitude as a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something, typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior. So your attitudes end up affecting your behavior, whatever those attitudes may be. Attitude is a position of the body prior to or implying an action or mental status, or mental state, not status. So, you know, like if, if I look out in the congregation and I notice you're like this, I, I realize that my point is not getting across the way that I want it to, or, you know, you're hungover from last night, which is always what I try to assume so that I, so that I feel better. I feel better. It's not that I'm boring. It's just that you're a sinner and you need Jesus. <laughs> you're lost and there's probably no hope for you. Uh, you, can, you can often interpret an attitude by a position of the body. How someone's attitude about whether they're, you know, they have a, a <laughs> the way they look or if they're asleep. Bored. You can tell if they're bored. You can tell if they're engaged. Sometimes people are engaged, you know. Uh, so Joe was in the first service, like, just like he's sitting right there. So Joe's sitting on the edge of his seat. He's, he's waiting uh, for a break so they can take a nap. He's sitting on the edge of his seat. Uh, and, the, and you notice that, right? You notice when people are attentive to you. Uh, we all do that. I, I used to have someone that would, I could tell they, they didn't like my sermons uh, because they would come, they would sit in the middle you don't know this person. This is a long time ago. They would, <laughs> it, it wasn't like three weeks ago, maybe five weeks ago, but not three weeks. No, no, it was years and years ago. And they would come and they would sit in the middle. And uh, when I would make a point, especially about love, grace, or forgiveness, they would roll their eyes. Like, you know, just to make sure that and they'd wait till I looked at them, you know, you know, that's kind of distracting in the middle of a sermon. I always wish I had a dart gun or something. I could like, stop that. Maybe a paintball gun, you know. So anyway, so uh, attitude is so important. Ephesians, Paul said to the Ephesians that we should be made new in the attitude of our minds. To be made new in the attitude of our minds. This is a that's a small portion of a, a great portion of scripture there. Philippians two five, Paul says to the Philippians, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now that's a challenge, isn't it? Your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ. You cannot overstate the importance of attitude in a person's life. More than anything else, it will determine your success in life. Attitudes run in groups. Attitudes run in families. Your family has an attitude. Maybe your family that you grew up in had a bad attitude, and you're trying to overcome that, and it's a reality. Uh, but your family can have an attitude. Uh, businesses have an attitude, good or bad. Think about this. Chick-fil-A has a corporate attitude. They've, they've trained their people that even, you know, that 16-year-old kid, it's really not his pleasure. I mean, you think about it. It's like, it's my pleasure. Not really. But he's conveying the attitude because that's the corporate attitude. If you don't convey that corporate attitude, you don't get to stay with the corporate. Right? So they've trained, and I can remember because I can remember a long time ago. That's the way McDonald's used to be. Not anymore. It's like, I mean, McDonald's doesn't even want to talk to you. They put a kiosk in the store. They want you to walk in, and they don't. 
They don't want to, have, they want you to go pick it up. They never want you to interact with you. Just give us the money and get out of the store. We closed the playground. There were too many kids in it. And they had germs. <laughs> you know. And don't ask for anything because they don't know where it is. Uh, that's a bad attitude, isn't it? Uh, Southwest Airlines has a particular attitude. Uh, American Airlines does too. If you work for American Airlines, I'm sorry. Uh, they have a bad attitude. They're just, it's just a grumpy airline. It's like the people from TSA became, uh, what do you call them? Flight attendants. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's bad, isn't it? That's okay. Churches have attitudes. You ever been to church had a bad attitude? I uh, hope it's not this one. Uh, uh, as, as a church, we want to have a, the right attitude. Just like Chick-fil-A, we're trying, to, we're trying to have the best attitude that exemplifies uh, our Lord and Savior. We want to have an attitude that where we individually, we're serving Jesus Christ with our lives. And that secondly, we want to serve one another the way Jesus loved us. We want to love each other the way Jesus loved us. That's a, that's a big challenge. It's not just love me as you, I'm going to love you like you love me. No, I'm going to love you like Jesus loved me. And we want to serve the world. We want to serve the world. What, what do we want to serve the world? But what have we got? We got Jesus. The greatest news, the unbelievable good news, we want to tell as many people as we can about the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think we have to love like Jesus and serve like Jesus if they want to hear about Jesus. So attitude's very important. Attitude's more important than intelligence, talent, giftedness. It's more important than beauty or popularity. It's more important than wealth or privilege. Thomas Jefferson said this about attitude, nothing can stop the man with the right mental attitude from achieving his goal. Nothing on earth can help the man with the wrong mental attitude. So four things I want to talk to you about uh, before we go. Number one, we choose our attitudes. Ephesians 4.23, we already read it, be made new in the attitude of your mind. We want to have a new attitude because we want to have the attitude of Christ. Viktor Frankl, you may not know who he is, but he was a prisoner of the Nazis in World War II. The Nazis exterminated with machine-like precision over six million people. Now, there are people who will tell you that the Holocaust was a hoax, and that is a lie. I've been to Auschwitz twice, and the reason we know that the Holocaust happened because the Nazis kept really good records of all the evil things they were doing. They cataloged everyone, every article of clothing they took from every tooth they took out of their head, gold tooth that they refined, everything, they did it. It was horrible. It was uh, malicious, evil, almost unprecedented in, in our history. They killed his mother and his wife and his brother. His, he, they, called his, they killed his mother. His wife and brother both died in the concentration camps. Only he and his sister survived of his immediate family. He was put to forced labor in Auschwitz in conditions that could not have been worse. Deplorable, horrible conditions. They barely fed them. They fed them just enough to not really keep them alive, just below life rations. 
Here's what he said in the midst of that. I choose to suffer with dignity, and no matter what the Nazis do to me, I will never hate one of them. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Isn't that powerful? He said, I'm not going to let them choose for me. I'm going to choose my attitude. They defeated him physically, but they never defeated him spiritually. Oh, Candace is here. Hi, Candace. How do you remember last week we took up a love offering for Candace? And you gave $4,000 to help Candace. I hope, that, I hope that helps a little bit. Amen? Amen. They're here. She's fighting the fight. She's fighting to beat this cancer. Y'all, when you think about it, you remember to pray for Candace and CJ. Pray for them every day because prayer is our hope. Amen. Thank you for your generosity. They defeated him physically, but they never could defeat him spiritually. He survived when thousands of around him died, not just of hunger, not just of the labor, but they were dying from hopelessness and a broken heart. And his attitude saved him. We choose our attitude. No one chooses it for you. You choose your attitude. And if you choose the right attitude, like Viktor Frankl, you will be unstoppable. He survived the prison camps. He became a motivational speaker. He died when he, in 1999. Lived a full life. Number two, attitudes are not caused by people or circumstances. You choose your attitude, number one. Number two, they're not caused by people or circumstances. We often think, if my circumstances were different, then I would have a better attitude. It's not my fault, it's their fault. It's not my fault, it's my family's fault. It's not my fault, it's the world's fault. It's not my fault, it's my boss's fault. It's not my fault. It, in other words, so we, we want to put the blame somewhere else on other people and circumstances. If cir- circumstances were different, I'd have the right attitude. And the answer to that is, no, you wouldn't. And the reason is because we have a couple of perfect examples. One is Adam and Eve. Now, Adam and Eve were created by God. Uh, they were perfect people in a perfect world. They lived over 900 years. They were 900 years old. So they were really old when they died. Adam and Eve were both created physically perfect. They had no sickness, no disease, uh, no flaws of any kind. Uh, They were living in a perfect world without mosquitoes or thorns or bed bugs or any of the things that, you know, tend to drive us crazy. They live in a perfect world. And God told them just one thing, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden. He just told them one thing. Now, in time, God might have told them other things. As there were more people, he, there were other things, like he, like he told Cain and Abel, he talked to Cain, he says, you know, don't kill your brother. But he did anyway. There were, there were other things that God had to say, but but it was just Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, he said, here's one thing. I want you not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. And uh, so God established a boundary. Why does God establish boundaries? Because God's the creator and we're not. He, he, he teaches us 
so that we'll understand and realize that we need him, but he doesn't need us. So in rebellion, in rebellion, in a perfect world, a perfect environment, perfect marriage, perfect relationship, everything, they're, they're getting to hang out with God every day. In a perfect world, they chose to believe a lie from Satan that they were being deprived somehow by not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that God was cheating them. He was holding back on them. He wasn't giving them all that they deserved. And in doing so, they rebelled against God, rejected his love, believed a lie, and ate the fruit from the tree. They couldn't have had better circumstances. And still, the circumstances didn't save them. King David is a great example. I love King David. I've preached uh, about the life of King David multiple times. Uh, Lord willing, I will again. Uh, in the worst times of his life, he had a great attitude. And he had some bad things happening. He was crowned king by Samuel. He was anointed king by Samuel. And then for about the next 14 years of his life, he spent running for his life because Saul was trying to kill him, who was the king that was already anointed, and he wasn't quite ready to step down. Uh, and so in those times, he wrote some incredible psalms as he was fleeing for his life, as he was in diff difficult situations. He was just about to die. And this is the psalm that he wrote when he feigned madness before Abimelech. So he, he acted like he was crazy because they kind of gave deference to crazy people, the, the pagans, the barbarians at that time, the non-Jewish non people. They gave deference to crazy people because they thought maybe they had some connection to the gods because they didn't have a connection to reality. <laughs> so they thought maybe they were seen through the veil into the spirit realm, and so they were a little afraid of them. And so... So David is in this situation where he goes before him and he doesn't know what to do. He's fearful and he acts like he's crazy and he gets out of the situation. And here's how he, he writes about this in Psalm 34, 4. This is, if you read the heading, it says, this is the Psalm that he wrote when he feigned madness in the presence of the king. I sought the Lord and he answered me. You think God said, do the crazy thing. <laughs> hey, Hey, do the crazy thing. Uh, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. And this, the, the Psalms are just absolutely full. If you're going through rough times, I want to tell you, the Psalms are full of times where you can read about, I, I was at the end of my rope. Things were coming unraveled. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have any hope. I didn't feel like God was answering prayer. I didn't feel like anybody was hearing me. Nobody was on my side. Nobody's for me. But God, you know, he'll have this whole first half of the psalm. is like, you know, it's horrible, it's horrible, it's horrible. But God came through. So we have that great example. In the good times in his life, he had a bad attitude. In the bad times, he had a great attitude. In the good times, he had a bad attitude. Think about this. Psalm 20, verse 7. No. 2 Samuel 7, 1. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies. So David's become king. He's defeated 
all of the enemies around him, God's given him rest, and he's been able to build himself a very opulent palace as king. This, this verse, these verses is preceding just before David fell into great sin with Bathsheba, where he sent and took Bathsheba from her home, then raped her, and then killed her husband to cover it up. That's some pretty bad living right there, folks. What's he saying in that? Before he's saying, trust God, he'll meet your needs. In this, he's saying, God, you're not meeting my needs. This was not a sexual issue with David. David had wives, at least eight wives, and many, probably 40 concubines. It was not a sexual problem. This was a control issue. It's an insecurity. It's a dealing with the rejection of his family, the rejection of his past. But here he's king, and it's not enough. He, you know, sometimes we, people live with, it's like, if I could get here, if I could get here, if I get there, then all this emptiness that I feel inside, all this rejection, my father's house that never received me, and how, my, how I was treated all my life. If I could get here, I could deal with this emptiness, and I would be here. But he, what, it, it didn't do it for him. The only thing that could fill him was God, and he would forget that. He would forget that in the times, in the good times. He took a census that God told him not to take. God told them not to number their warriors and their horses and their chariots. Why? Because God knew it wasn't about the numbers, but about trusting him. I mean, How did he defeat Goliath in an impossible situation with a slingshot? He defeats the giant. Unbelievable. He's seen victory after victory. He's seen God do miraculous things that just were not possible. And he's seen that. And here he is. He sends out and counts his troops. Listen to what he said in Psalm verse 20, verse 7. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, But we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. He forgot his own psalm. I can't be too hard on him. I forgot some of my own sermons. Tina's tried to remind me at times. (laughs) Have you forgot the advice you've given other people sometimes? Some of the things you thought were good, then you turned around and did the exact same thing. He forgot his own psalm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust in my resources more than trust in God. You see, what are you trusting in? Because your true Savior is what you put your trust in. Is your true Savior God? Is your true Savior money? Is your true Savior your job? Is your true Savior your family? All of those things are good, but they can't save you. Where are you putting your hope? David would get distracted in the good times. In the bad times, he didn't have any choice but to rely on God. But then in the good times, he would depend upon his own resources. And it always turned out badly. Just like it does for us. So you cannot connect 
attitude with people and circumstances. The Apostle Paul is a great example of this. Now, the Apostle Paul is preaching, and there's a young lady following them that is possessed with a demon. And the people who own this girl, she's a slave girl, the people who own her are using her for profit to be a fortune teller. And so this girl is following Paul and Silas while they're preaching the gospel. And she's saying, these men are servants of the Most High God, which is true, right? But, but she's, she's messing with them. She, they're trying to preach the gospel. You can imagine that Paul's out preaching the gospel in the middle of his presentation. She says, these men are servants of the Most High God. She's like, okay, I'm getting to that. Would you, you know? And finally, Paul is just irritated. And he says to the demon, get out of her. And the demon leaves. Well, the people who were using this girl for profit, she was their money-making machine. They got mad because she'd been set free and she no longer could tell or even act like she was telling fortunes. So the crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them, stripped them naked, and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison. In other words, you know, not just in prison, but you know, down deep in the prison, and fastened their feet in stocks. But about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And that is a, this is an incredible story. So they're stripped naked. They have been beaten. They've been thrown in a prison, and I guarantee you, they got thrown in there without their supper. They didn't get anything to eat. They didn't have anybody bringing them by. Hey, are you guys thirsty? Nobody cared. And they're in prison. And you know, I don't know. This is a great, this is a great place for a woe is me song. Like, God, I can't believe you let us down. We're, we're here preaching the gospel. We're serving you. We love you, and you've let this happen to us. You ever tempted to say those kind of things to God? I think we all are at times. But there they are, and I love this. Their feet are fastened. Their backs are beaten. They're hungry and thirsty. They're naked, and about midnight... Something happens. Paul, his hands aren't bound. Paul lifts up his arms. He just saying, I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to worship you, oh, my soul. 
Rejoice. And Silas joins in. Come on, Silas. Come on, Tim. Tim Silas. Take joy, my king, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet. They're just singing. You know, he's just, they're just praising God. They're not praising God saying, oh, God, we're gonna, if we praise you, will you get us out of these socks? Lord, we're going to praise you if you open the doors. They're just praising the Lord. And, and I love this. God just does a specific kind of earthquake. An, an earthquake that opens doors and makes chains fall off. Now, if you, everybody else would have said, well, there's a logical explanation for that. There was an earthquake. Well, there was an earthquake that made the doors come unlocked and the chains open up. You know, sometimes if you'll praise God in the midst of a bad circumstance, the doors will come open and the chains will fall off. You know, we, get it, we think, God, if you'll open the door and take off the chains, then I'll praise you. God says, praise me. Praise me. And it's not a barter. It's not a deal. He says, just praise me, and you just trust me with what I'm going to do. You praise me, and you trust me. Because the chains didn't always come off, and the doors didn't always come open. Right? But this time, but if we'll praise him and trust him, Praise him and trust him. And even if nothing happens, even if you praise him at midnight and the chains are still on there and the stocks are still on your feet and the doors are still locked, you're still better off. Because God is healing your attitude. Number three, happiness is a chosen attitude, not a state of being. Some of the happiest people come out of the most difficult circumstances. Some of you remember Carol Burnett. She was a great comedian. She grew up in a horrible family in great poverty. She, she, her, both, of her, both of her parents were alcoholics. She had very little opportunity for education, but she was able through her life to use that to make people laugh. Some people are miserable and try to make everyone else miserable. Some people are happy and try to make everyone else happy. Here's what I want you to get. Happiness cannot be traveled to. It's not a destination. If you're not happy here, you won't be happy in Hawaii. If you're not happy here, you won't be happy in the mountains of Colorado. If you're not happy here, you won't be happy in the Virgin Islands. In other words, the problem with travel is that wherever you go, there you are. You, you can't escape you. So you can't travel to it. You can't, you can't buy it. <laughs> it can't be owned or worn or consumed or driven. All the things are great. It's good to have all those things. I mean, I've already had people complain today that my shoes are too bland Very, I look very fallish, thank you. And I match my wife, which is, you know, we often plan our road, wardrobes. We don't. I'm, that was a lie. That was a lie. Okay. 
See, happiness doesn't happen to the lucky and not happen to the unlucky. It is a choice. Abraham Lincoln said, Abraham Lincoln said, we're as happy as we make up our minds to be. Abraham Lincoln lost more elections than he ever thought about winning. He was defeated time after time after time, and he kept plugging away. Seven of his eight sons died. And he said, we're as happy as we make up our minds to be. If you choose happiness, even when you don't feel happy, then you will be unstoppable. No amens, just sitting there, okay. Number four, God in life itself, God in life itself rewards good attitudes and disciplines bad attitudes, and so should good parents. God rewards and disciplines good and bad attitudes. James 4, 6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So so when we see bad behavior, we want to discipline it while it is still an attitude. God disciplines attitudes. You need to understand this. God loves you. He's crazy about you. He's madly in love with you, and nothing can change that. But like a loving parent, he relates to us based on our attitude. So when our attitude isn't right, God's going to discipline us because he loves us. Is pride an attitude? Yes. It's, pride is like saying, I don't need your help. I don't guess you're ever having a problem with your kids doing that. I mean, your kids never act like they don't need you to give them direction. When does that start? As soon as they can talk. Or as soon as they can walk, really. I mean, Byron, our youngest grandchild at the moment, was... Uh, was uh, in our bedroom at the house last week. We were watching, somehow we had this crazy thing. We're, we're watching all four of the grandkids and we're not good at it, I'm gonna tell you that. And Byron is in the closet with me and the closet in our bedroom, when you shut the door, it turns the light off. He would shut the door and I would say, no, Byron, don't do that because I can't see. And I would move him and open the door. Then it became a game. Shut the door, move him, open the door. Shut the door, move him, open the door. Shut the door, move him, open the door. God relates to us on our attitude. Is pride an attitude? Yes. God loves us when we're prideful. I'm not going to tell you all the details of everything that went on. His his father is here. (laughs) He made me cry. Made me cry a little. Uh, He loves us when we're prideful, but pride puts itself above God, his word, and his ways. When you're prideful, when you say no to God, there are areas in your life where God will speak to you by his word and by his spirit. He will tell you, forgive that person, and you're like, I don't want to. God says, I don't care if you want to. Or there's sin in your life, and God will say to you with clarity by the Holy Spirit, stop it. Stop that. Stop that attitude. Stop that action. Stop behaving that way. And we choose how we act. God, because he loves you too much, he will discipline you when you're going the wrong direction. He will say, stop. People who pat you on the back on the way to destruction do not love you. Do you hear about the couple of guys that, you know, 
they're standing beside the road and they've got, they've got placards and one's got on his placard, the end is near. The other one says, turn back. And so they're just holding those up, you know, and people are driving by and one of them was, you religious fanatics, leave us alone. Then they'd hear, screech, crash, crash, crash. So finally they said, do you think maybe we should put on the sides bridges out? We miss what God's saying sometimes because we're being stubborn. James said in 410, humble yourselves under the presence of the Lord and he'll exalt you. When we humble ourselves, we open ourselves to receive waves and waves of God's grace and favor and love. There's just more and more of God's grace and favor and love than you can ever imagine. And when we humble ourselves before him and say, God, I choose your way over my way. I choose what your, your will, your word, your, your presence, your methods, then we see God work in powerful ways. Hebrews 12, 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't be weary when you're reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best for them, but he disciplines us for our good that we might share his holiness." He disciplines us so that we'll share his holiness. What does this mean? It means that God's holiness, his holiness, when we think of holiness, we think of purity. That's just one aspect of holiness. The word holiness is wholeness. God is whole and complete. There's no one like God. God is totally unique. And we share in his uniqueness. Guess what? When God made you, you know what he did? He made you unique. There's nobody like you. Thank the Lord. You heard that old joke, when God made you, they broke the mold. Then they beat the hell out of the mold maker. (laughs) Sorry. Just a really old joke. They broke the mold, okay? God made you specific and unique. He made you to be holy, to be like him. For at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that it may be lame and not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. God wants you to grow up and share his holiness. God is whole. God's not broken. There's no brokenness in God. There's no wounds in God except the ones we put in his hands and in his feet. There's no brokenness in God. And God wants to heal your brokenness. He wants you to be whole in him. He wants you to be complete in him. He wants you to labor with him in his kingdom. He wants you to become a mighty spiritual warrior. He wants you to be able to serve Jesus and serve one another and serve the world. He's invited you into his family business. And it doesn't start when we get to heaven. He's not waiting till we get to heaven till he starts using us for his kingdom. It starts when we come into his family. 
So he disciplines us to share his holiness, to share his purpose, to share his calling, to share his victory. So that we'll be more like him. The discipline is over when the lesson's learned. I love this verse. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your feeble knees. Sometimes we have the grandkids over and we'll say to them something like this. Hey, kids, pick up the toys. Come eat supper. You know what happens? Drooping hands and weak knees. Hey, go pick up the toys. You know what they say? Can you help me? You didn't have any trouble getting every box out of the shelf and dumping on the floor. Why is it hard now to fill that box back up? I don't know. Can you help me? Drooping hands. Weak knees. I don't know what to do. Or God says to you, hey, I want you to forgive that person. I don't want to. Or what if that same kid, see, it's, it's easier to deal with in a two-year-old than a 15-year-old. Because if you don't deal with it in a two-year-old, when that 15-year-old goes to work at Whataburger or McDonald's for minimum wage, and his boss turns to him and says, hey, pick up all that trash and take it out of the dumpster. And he says, oh, no, I don't have to pick up trash at home. Or maybe he's 30. He's married. And his wife says to him, hey, would you go in there and wash the dishes? I was going to watch the cowboys. I don't know. <laughs> Attitudes will destroy you if you don't change your attitude. And God wouldn't tell us to change it if we didn't have the ability to do it. We can be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Amen. I got to quit. Okay, I'm stopping. Let's stand and sing this song.